Good morning, Canberra, and welcome to Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday. My name is Broderick Matthews, and it's a pleasure to be with you on this beautiful Sunday morning. It might be a little bit chilly out there, but there's plenty of sun happening here in Canberra, which is, you know, a good Canberra winter's day, if... Uh, if nothing else. And uh, so I uh, am very pleased to be here in the studio to share with you some science this Sunday. Uh, thanks very much to Irish Voice for the show beforehand. And uh, now here on 2XFM, we're going to make our way into the world of science. I've picked up a range of science news that's been out and about this week uh, that we're going to dive into and explore a little further. And to kick it off, uh, I found this story back from my hometown of South Australia and a new giant species of fossil that was found just off Kangaroo Island. Uh, and uh, it's uh, an amazing species, likely the terror of other creatures on the seafloor. But uh, we're not talking about a shark or anything like this. that at this point in time. We're talking about a new species of trilobite. What's a trilobite, you're asking? Well, it's, it's, uh, it's a creature. Um, <laughs> we don't have uh, them around now. They existed in uh, around 520 million years ago, in what's known as the early Cambrian period, and they stuck around f until about 250 million years ago, That's at the end of the Permian period there. And the name trilobiter is actually derived from the three-lobed, or tri-lobe, uh, structure of the exoskeleton, um, which has a central lobe and a pair of side lobes called uh, the trilobite body is also divided lengthwise into three regions, a head, a thorax, uh, which is composed of many articulated segments, and a tail. It... Uh Look, it's, it's closely related to a horseshoe crab. So if you've ever seen a horseshoe crab, it kind of looks like that. Um, but it's, it's this weird disc-like disc -like creature. Um, it looks like it should be an insect, really, but it's not an insect at all. Um, and uh, it doesn't... It's one of those typical fossils you've probably seen uh, in the in the stone, oval shape with a series of like uh, you can kind of see the head and bits coming off, and then that segmented uh, the the segments coming down in the thorax there, the articulated segments, and uh, and this new one uh, looks. I mean, the 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 photos that well, they're not showing photos, are they? the drawings that they're showing of this new creature? I mean, it looks like a, a giant uh, starship Enterprise or something floating through the water. So it's it's kind of amazing to think about because we just don't really have anything like it now uh, at all. Uh, but uh, this thing would have been the scourge of the seas um, when it was around. Uh, now, the discovery of this uh, this fossil is called Redlichia rex. Uh, rex, of course, meaning king. Uh, Redlichia, I'm not sure of that one, though. Um, and it's the largest Cambrian trilobite to be discovered in Australia. Um, and we can see these fossils thanks to the hard calcified armor-like skeletons over the body of the trilobite. They, they are related to modern crustaceans and insects, so that's why it does kind of look like an insect or a horseshoe crab. And in fact, they're probably one of the most successful fossil animal groups with their 270 million year survival. Uh, this new species was discovered at Emu Bay on Kangaroo Island, where more than 100 other species were also discovered, including some with their soft parts intact. 
that sounds a bit rude, doesn't it? Uh, but but uh, it's a pretty pretty good discovery because often we only see the hard parts when we're looking at fossils. Ah, here we are. This is why the species is called Red Lichia rex, similar to Tyrannosaurus rex, because of its giant size as well as its as its formidable legs with spines used for crushing and shredding food. The food which may have been other trilobites. Now, this discovery was made by University of Adelaide PhD student James Holmes and published recently in the Journal of Systematic Paleontology uh, by uh, the University of Adelaide, South Australian Museum and the University of England, uh, New England. Sorry, uh, As I said, it is the largest Cambrian trilobite found in Australia it's only about 30 centimetres long, uh, but that's quite huge when you think it's twice the length of other trilobites of about the same age. So, you know, when you're uh, the one-eyed man is king in the land of the blind, if, if everything else is 15 centimetres and you're 30, you're going to dominate there. Uh, so there's some, been some interesting things about the trilite specimens that have been found at uh, the Emu Bay Shale because uh, they actually exhibit injuries that were caused by shell-crushing predators, uh, which is quite different. And there are also live specimens of fossilised poo containing trilobite fragments in this fossil deposit. So they have to try and work out what was crushing these. Um, but uh, the Cambrian explosion, which happened around this time, which was when the trilobites came about, was like uh, had a bit of an evolutionary arms race uh, at that point in time. And if we think about the Cambrian explosion, uh, what that really is is that the sudden appearance and in our fossil record, because, of course, we weren't there, of, of these complex animals coming out uh, with their mineralised skeletal remains and, you know, it may represent the most important evolutionary event in the history of life on Earth uh, when we suddenly get all these creatures appearing and it is called an explosion because we just keep finding more and more evidence of it, um, of these mineralised skeletons. Uh, and the trilobites were a huge part of this Cambrian explosion. Uh, so, yeah, interestingly, the overall size and crushing legs of red lichia rex are likely a consequence of this Cambrian explosion and the arms race that was occurring between predators and prey at this time. And so, yeah, this giant trilobite was probably terrorising smaller creatures on the Cambrian sea floor. If you do want to catch the specimen of Red Lickia Rex and other Emu Bay Shale fossils, they're on display at the South Australian Museum. So you can head in there and check them out. Now, while we're in the world of the ancient, I thought, uh, look, it, uh, <laughs> I found this story too, and I thought it was quite interesting. Um, and it was talking about getting high at ancient funerals. Uh, and what we're seeing, what we're actually finding evidence for is that humans were smoking cannabis as part of ritualised burial ceremonies uh, two and a half thousand years ago. According to the latest evidence, unearthed at a burial site in uh, the Pamir Plateau in western China. Um, now, it's not quite uh, the sort of uh, cannabis smoking that we see today. Uh, the reality, probably quite different. Uh, the Chinese Academy of Science, uh, Sciences have been reporting uh, they found uh, 10 wooden pots or braziers uh, which contained burnt stones from tombs at the Jizenkarl Cemetery. And when the team analysed these uh, pots and burnt stones, they found traces of cannabis. 
And interestingly, the cannabis actually contained higher levels of tetrahydrocannabinol, or THC, uh, which is the main psychoactive compound that we find in cannabis. And so... Um, this was much higher in uh, in this uh, location than generally found in wild cannabis plants. And the fact that the traces of THC was found in the pots and on the stones suggests that cannabis was used for ritual purposes uh, as part of this. You know, they're in the stones as part of the burial ground there. And uh, so, yeah, and it probably uh, the psychoactive problem properties of cannabis would have had an interesting effect around that time, especially in a period of mourning. There's no clear evidence, though, of smoking pipes existing in Central Asia before the modern era. So instead, people would either eat the plant or inhale the smoke or vapours when it was burnt. Uh, And we clearly see that cannabis is being burned on hot rocks, which uh, must have produced smoke and would have then uh, incurred psychoactive effects on those present in an enclosed space. Uh, so it actually matches uh, some other evidence that we have for cannabis use throughout history uh, from uh, a text written in, by the 5th century BC Greek historian Herodotus, uh, which was uh, in that the drug was thought to be cannabis sativa. So it's quite an interesting thing that we're kind of cross-referencing these historical discoveries here. And this discovery paints a vibrant picture of what those past burial rituals might have looked like. Uh, the, there's, uh, they also found musical instruments alongside or at the cemetery. So we can think of you know, the rhythmic sound as the hallucinogenic smoke uh, creating altered, sense, uh, altered states of mind. And uh, rites such as these would have really had important social functions for ancient communities, just like funerals do today. Um, the other... And I guess that whole funeral rite is quite interesting. I went to Thailand a few years ago and uh, was going to uh, on a walk uh, through some of the jungles in out of Chiang Mai, and I, I went on a, a locally guided. Uh, they called it a hill tribe trek, uh, so a hike to visit some of the local hill tribes. And it was just myself and a guide, and we we stumbled into the first village, and it started to rain a little. So he uh, went around to see if there was someone who would take us in for a cup of tea uh, for a little while. And uh, we stumbled upon this family uh, who said, "Yes, please come in." And uh, it wasn't until we got inside that we realised that they're actually in the middle of a uh, funeral mourning period. Uh, and so they were all sitting round together in the hut of their granddad uh, and their granddad was in a coffin on uh, just uh, in, at the back of the hut. And uh, <laughs> that was a bit confronting, but he, uh, he was covered up and he was actually covered in food and various offerings and that sort of thing that they believed uh, were there to help him in the afterlife. Um, so it was quite interesting to be a part of that one. And at one stage, I was actually given some uh, leaves to chew uh, and that sort of thing. And I just, just being the polite person, uh, took them and, and copied what everyone else was doing. And uh, then slowly my mouth went numb. And uh, I realised that there was uh, more to these leaves than meets the eye. And uh, that was uh, just part of um, what, was, uh, what was their ritual there, was uh, chewing these leaves as part of that funeral morning. Uh, we actually left them later that day, but they said uh, they were very blessed uh, that they had someone uh, visit uh, from uh, outside of uh, Thailand, and I felt very special for that. Uh, and then we came back a couple of days later, and they'd uh, done the, the whole funeral and buried Grandpa, and uh, were then um, 
uh, emptying out the hut uh, when we returned. So that was quite an interesting experience. But just to see that sort of uh, ritual that was taking place in the hill tribes in Thailand. Uh, so, so you know, funerals have always been a ritual and it's interesting to, to delve down deep into them and see what's going on. And this uh, ritual here with the cannabis along with musical instruments and, and burning the cannabis on the stone is quite quite an interesting one indeed. Uh, while they were there too, the scientists who were analysing the site also did some uh, preliminary analysis of the human bones uh, found at that cemetery. They identified skull perforations and fatal cuts and breaks in several bones, uh, which the researchers interpret as signs of human sacrifice, uh, although they do want to do more research to verify this claim. Uh, so it's interesting to look at uh, this early use of cannabis because it has been up for debate uh, for a while. You know, cannabis has long been cultivated as a crop, but its actual history is a bit unclear. Uh, uh, we can't sort of work out uh, how the plant was used necessarily Um there's a lot of speculation over early cannabis use in Central Asia. Uh, there are a few key archaeological accounts that have been discredited outright and uh, other speculations. Uh, it's, so it's a, quite a difficult thing to look into. Um, and it does have many uses. It's not just as a recreational drug, which is what most people today associate it with. It did have uses, or does still have uses, as medicine, as food, as fibre. And uh, so it's interesting to look at uh, how cannabis is used in that variety of ways throughout history. So a bit more study is needed there to discover the history of cannabis. All right, I'm going to take a little breather now and uh, we're going to have a music break. Uh, this is Gautier featuring Kimbra and somebody that I used to know. Gautier there with somebody that I used to know featuring Kimbra as well. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic here on 2XXFM. And uh, especially important on 2XXFM is uh, our donation time because we are community radio here. And uh, so there's uh, some... Uh, you've got the ability to donate now. Uh, so you can donate uh, online uh, to us because uh, we need uh, your support at your community community station, uh, 2XX, to serve the community with uh, independent media broadcasting voices that would not have otherwise have the opportunity to be heard. Uh, so how do you donate? Well, you can do it online via the 2XX website, 2XXFM.org.au. That's 2XXFM.org.au. Click on support 2XX, then donate. You can pay by credit card or PayPal or download the donation form and fill it out and send it back to us. Uh, you can also make a direct deposit. The 2XX bank account details are on the downloadable donation form on our website. Uh, or you can contact the station, accounts at 2xxfm.org.au or call us uh, during normal business hours on 6230-0100. Thanks heaps to all our 2XX supporters, sponsors and subscribers. With your generous support, we've been here since 1976 Currently, we're making over 80 hours of diverse local independent community radio each week, which is just amazing. And I certainly relish the opportunity to be here on Fuzzy Logic uh, each and every week when I can come in to share some of the science news because I thoroughly enjoy it. And I think it's awesome that uh, we have the opportunity to focus on science for an hour every Sunday. Uh, 
Speaking of uh, hours every Sunday, uh, well, no, this is, that's a terrible segue, Broderick. I'm just going to start that again. There's uh, been a new study that's out this week that uh, is looking at uh, the importance of being outside. And I went for a run myself this morning, a half-hour run through Bruce Ridge there. And uh, it's, it is refreshing to be outside in the – I know it's cold at the moment, but it is a fresh air through there, going through nature, running along the dirt tracks and all that sort of thing. And apparently two hours a week in nature is the threshold we need to reach uh, before feeling the benefits to our health and well-being. This is according to new research. Um, and it's quite interesting research indeed. You know, we, we've always known – many a time that being in the great outdoors is good for us. Uh, But authors of a new study published in Scientific Reports uh, have done the first large-scale research to quantify how much time is needed to feel the effects. And the interesting thing is it applies to old and young people, males, females, rich and the poor. The effects were the same where the participants uh, came from all those different areas and whether they caught their nature time in small chunks or saved up their time outdoors for a weekend megadose. So it's interesting indeed. Um, Two hours a week, it doesn't have to be all at the same time, but uh, two hours a week is what you need to really feel the effects. Now, nature, as defined by the study, didn't have to be pristine wilderness or spectacular national parks. Beaches, city parks, farmland were all included as natural environments. Going for a surf or cycle uh, might be a great way to pair outdoor time with getting active, but uh, physical activity wasn't even necessary to feel the benefits of being in nature. So the quiz used survey data from more than 19,000 participants in the United Kingdom who were quizzed about their contact with nature. Participants then also described their health in categories ranging from very bad to very good. And to assess well-being, they were asked to rank how satisfied they were with their life on a 10-point scale. Uh, And uh, so from there, they then had to unpick how factors in people's lives affect their health and happiness. And it's always a difficult thing because uh, quantifying the impact of something like uh, time spent in nature involves so many variables. There's a heap of different uh, factors in there, including, you know, the political, social, economic, cultural, historical factors that impact our relationship with a place. They all come out to bear on our subjective experience, which is hard to quantify. And any research that adds to it, adds to the body of knowledge around the positive impacts of nature and health is uh, obviously very welcome. So, but the challenge is to make sure it's accurate in there. One challenge, of course, is that healthy people are more likely to spend time in nature, uh, as they will often exercise outdoors. So it's, it's difficult to show cause and effect there. But uh, the, the, the survey showed that even among unhealthy people, such as those with long-term illness, meeting the threshold of two hours in nature per week did provide a lift to their health and well-being scores, raising their results compared to similarly unwell people who didn't get that exposure. Now, of course, getting back to nature isn't easy for everyone. Uh, and 
you know, richer people tend to live in nicer, more natural areas. And so access to natural spaces for poorer communities is, is something that's important to help people overcome these barriers. And uh, people in residential aged care or with mobility issues are also more likely to live interior lives. So uh, they should be looking at uh, green spaces and thinking about ways to make those green spaces inclusive. And that should go throughout the whole community, you know. Uh, why not provide a bit more seating or make places open access? Community gardens are also a great model for how we can include everyone in these sorts of green spaces. So great options there. All right. What else have we been up to this week in the world of science? Um, well, uh, there was an interesting uh, study. This isn't so much research, but just an interesting bit of uh, a follow-up uh, that uh, was found Uh around that old theory that uh, Tasmanians have two heads. Uh, you know, we've all made that joke to the, the Tasmanian, you know, where's your scar and that sort of thing. And for centuries, really, people have uh, made the joke about the Tasmanians. We've got to feel sorry for the Tasmanians here because, you know, they're, they're lovely people. They live in a lovely place. I think a lot of it just comes from jealousy because they have so many great outdoor areas to be spending their time in. Uh but uh, this week, uh, it was I was reading, and it was interesting to see where this joke may have actually originated from. Uh, there's little reference to two-headed Tasmanians in historical records, uh, with internet research just showcasing blog posts and amateur documentaries. But there's there's a few theories as to why this may have come about. The first theory uh, talks about uh, Tasmania's historically isolated community and uh, limited choice of mating partners, so that whole inbred side of things. Uh, but uh, the second theory comes from World War I, uh, when soldiers from the island state uh, supposedly asked for two pillows for their bunks instead of the usual one. And so, uh, you know, that kind of makes sense. Uh, why do you need two pillows? You've got two heads. And then the Tasmanians just become known as the two heads. But the most plausible explanation actually has a bit of scientific and medical backing around it, and it's got its basis way back in the glacial period. Uh, so it's thought to have come from widespread cases of goiter in Tasmania throughout the 19th and 20th century. Now, goiter is the swelling of the neck due to the enlargement of the thyroid gland. And uh, what causes this enlargement of the thyroid gland? Well, it's iodine deficiency. Um, and interestingly, Tasmania as a whole is actually mildly iodine deficient. During the 19th and 20th centuries in particular, that led to tremendous amounts of goiter across the Apple Isle. Sometimes these goiters were quite large, and so the joke went around that it was protruding like a second head. You know, they could get as big as footballs. It was almost taken for granted in Tasmania that you'd had a goiter. And sometimes these goiters were removed, which left a scar on the neck, and again leading to that joke where the famous, infamous second head would have been. In fact, uh, it's uh, affected famous Tasmanians as well. Dame Enid Lyons, the first woman elected to the Australian House of Representatives, uh, had undergone goiter removal surgery before the 1949 federal election. And that's why she wore scarves and necklaces in all her photos after that. Uh, she was trying to cover up her scar there. Uh, so, you know, 
quite a, a different thing. Uh, goiter was actually so prevalent in Tasmania that uh, the state government provided daily potassium and iodine, potassium iodine tablets to school children in 1949. Uh, but the program was eventually dropped as it wasn't an effective measure during school holidays. So why does Tasmania have the lack of iodine? Well, it's all got to do with the Ice Age. During the Ice Age, Tasmania's topsoil was leached of iodine, uh, which resulted in centuries of low iodine foods. And there was a concerted effort, uh, particularly in the latter half of the 20th century, to fix this deficiency with mixed results. Uh, there's now a very low level of thyroid conditions in Tasmania, and uh, that's partially due to the widespread supplementation, supplementation of iodine in the 1960s. Uh, I beg your pardon, sorry. There is low-level thyroid conditions now in Tasmania. However, the widespread supplementation of iodine in the 1960s actually provided too much iodine for people and caused a space of thyrotoxicosis uh, or hypothyroidism caused by excessive hormone production. And so uh, it's, you know, a fine line. Iodized salt in bread is now mandatory and iodine is a key ingredient in the products used to clean milk vats and cow's teats before milking. Uh, but uh, all the dairy companies have uh, – so, yeah, so there's iodine uh, that comes through our milk and our bread and our regular spots that we get them there. So, you know, there is that protection there now. But, of course, it's always a fine line with these mass medications uh, to see how we take it from there. So very interesting indeed. All right, I think it's time for another break now. Uh, let's have another song today. Uh, well, look, it is a lovely Sunday today. I've been bragging about that already. So let's have a bit of Amy Shark with her song, Weekends. Anyone else but you. And that was Amy Shark there with her song, Weekends. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic on this uh Second day of the weekend, the Sunday, and uh, we've got a whole bunch of uh, science right here for you in the studio uh, this very fine day, and uh, we've been going through a few interesting stories so far, and before the break we were talking about uh, the issue of iodine leading to that uh, story around Tasmanians having two heads. Well, interestingly, uh, I've got another story here about uh, not so much the lack of iodine, but the lack of iron uh, with your red meat, because if you're a red meat eater... Uh, you're getting your iron from there. But look, there's honestly a good chance you're eating more red meat than you should, uh, which is a slightly worrying thing because uh, a bit of uh, backstory for you here, folks. I've got a vegan uh, fiance and uh, she's lovely and uh, we share a lot of vegan meals together. Uh, but uh, she's been away for the past week. And so I thought, well, while you're away, I'm going to take advantage of that and uh, start to eat a bit more meat than I normally would. And so for my lunches this week, I made a beautiful beef and stout stew, uh, which was just lovely. And uh, then last night for dinner, I had some beef ribs and I started to add up all the meat I ate across the week and then started started to worry quite a bit when I read uh, the World Health Guidelines for how much red meat you're supposed to eat. Because I reckon this week I've probably eaten over a kilo of red meat. Apparently, you're only supposed to eat about 100 grams of red meat a week. So... Uh, 
that was slightly concerning when I heard that news. Um, yeah, quite interesting indeed. Uh, so yeah, about 14 grams a day or 100 grams of red meat a week according to world guidelines. Australia's dietary guidelines are a little more conservative uh, and recommend limiting red meat intake to a maximum of 455 grams a week or 65 grams a day. So I still exceeded that quite a bit, but that's okay. Uh, I'll just have to have a good vegan week (laughs) this week coming. But uh, they recommend it to reduce the additional cancer risk that comes from eating large quantities of red meat. So if you do eat less red meat, and it's a great source of iron... How can you ensure you're getting enough iron? And along with that, how can you ensure you're getting enough protein, zinc, and vitamin B12? There's a few different options here. You know, protein-wise, animal sources uh, of protein provide essential amino acids, which the body uses to make muscle tissue, hormones, neurotransmitters, different cells and antibodies in our immune system. Uh, But uh, there are protein from a variety of other sources. Uh, So it uh, recommends, uh, on average, you should eat 25 grams of chicken per day, 28 grams of fish, one and a half eggs a week, 200 grams of milk per day, and 50 grams of cheese. So in addition to the 14 grams of red meat, uh, all that together would provide a total of 45 grams of protein per day, which is about 80% of our daily protein needs from animal sources. The remaining protein required of 11 grams is easily met with plant foods, including nuts, legumes, beans and whole grains. But of course, if uh, you don't eat meat sources there, then um, yeah, it's uh, going to be much more of those uh, nuts, legumes, beans and whole grains to get your protein on a daily basis. Iron, of course, is essential for many of our body functions, including transporting oxygen to the blood. And iron deficiency can lead to anemia, a condition in which you feel tired and lethargic. Uh, Pre-menopausal women need about uh, 18 milligrams of iron a day, while men only need 8 milligrams. I find that quite strange, isn't it? Because men are often the bigger red meat eaters than women, uh, just stereotypically, not always the case, though. So uh, that's quite interesting that... uh, Men need less iron than women. Uh, Premenopausal women actually need more iron because of the blood they lose during menstruation. So how can we get enough iron? Well, beef is the average source of iron. There's about 3.3 milligrams of iron for every 100 grams of meat. Uh, Same about of chicken breast only contains 0.4 milligrams, so 3.3 compared to 0.4. So the chicken thigh, the darker meat, does contain slightly higher levels of iron at 0.9 grams, uh, 9 milligrams. Pork, similarly low, 0.7 milligrams per 100 grams of pork. But kangaroo... Kangaroo's got 4.1 milligrams of iron for every 100 grams. So kangaroo is a red meat, but uh, it's more sustainable, lower methane emissions for uh, the farming of it, and it's one-third the levels of saturated fat than beef, making it a healthier and more environmentally friendly alternative. Plant protein sources, though, are also high in iron. Cooked kidney beans have 1.7 milligrams of iron for every 100 grams, so better than chicken or pork. And uh, brown lentils. Brown lentils have 2.37 milligrams per 100 grams of lentils. So, again, 
not doing too badly there, almost reaching beef levels in terms of iron from brown lentils. So if you wanted to cut your red meat intake from the average uh, of 81 uh, 81 grams a day to the recommended 14 grams a day, uh, while still getting the same amount of iron, you need to consume the equivalent of either 50 grams of kangaroo, 100 grams of brown lentils, or 150 grams of red kidney beans per day. Zinc is uh, another part of the the, uh, healthy things that we get from red meat, and zinc's an essential mineral to help the body function optimally. It uh, affects everything from our ability to fight bugs to our sense of smell and taste. Zinc requirements are higher for men uh, with 14 milligrams a day and women only need 8 milligrams a day, and that's due to zinc's role in the production and development of sperm. Of all meat sources, beef does provide the most zinc at 8.2 milligrams per 100, uh, but chicken uh, and chicken provides just 0.68 milligrams, so almost uh, 10% of the uh, zinc that's in red meat. But again, the chicken thigh is the best spot for it with 2 milligrams per 100 grams. Uh, in kangaroo meat, the levels of zinc are about half that of beef, uh, in fact, less than half. Uh, the richest source of zinc is actually oysters with 48.3 milligrams per 100 grams. Beans such as lentils, red kidney beans and chickpeas all provide about one milligram per 100. Uh, so to meet the shortfall of zinc from reducing your red meat intake, you could eat a dozen oysters a day which is unlikely, or you could eat a combination of foods such as uh, 150 grams of red bean, it's one serve of zinc-supplemented cereals like wheat bix, three slices of whole grain bread, and a handful of mixed nuts. Vitamin B12 is another important uh, vitamin that comes from our meat, and it's good, important for healthy blood and nerve function. It's actually the nutrient of most concern for people cutting out meat products as it's only found in animal sources. Uh, Requirements of vitamin B12 are the same for women and men at 2.4 micrograms a day. Beef and uh, kangaroo provide that uh, 2.5 micrograms in a 100-gram serve, while chicken and turkey provide about 0.6. Dairy products also contain vitamin B12. In fact, a glass of milk gives you half your daily requirement. Uh, One slice of cheese provides 20% of your daily requirement. And vitamin B12 can be found in trace amounts in spinach and fermented foods, but these levels aren't high enough to meet your nutritional needs. Mushrooms, however, do have consistently high levels, with shiitake mushrooms containing 5 micrograms per 100 grams there. So... uh, Uh, high levels in shiitake mushrooms. To meet the shortfall of vitamin B12 from reducing red meat intake, you probably need to increase your kangaroo or have a glass of milk and a slice of cheese. Alternatively, dried shiitake mushrooms in your salad or stir-fry would also fulfil your requirements. And uh, we can't forget about fibre either. A recent study found fibre intakes of about 25 to 29 grams a day were linked to lower rates of many chronic diseases such as coronary heart disease, type 2 diabetes, stroke and bowel cancer. Yet most Australian adults currently have low dietary fibre levels of about 20 grams per day. Uh, Making some of the changes above uh, and increasing your intake of meat alternatives such as legumes, you'll also be boosting your dietary fibre. In fact, uh, substituting 100 grams of lentils will give you an extra 5 grams of fibre per day, which is great. 
with some forward planning, easy to swap red meat out for other animal products and non-meat alternatives, which is uh, what I'm going to be doing this coming week when my fiancé gets back home and uh, we'll be back onto the vegan bandwagon indeed. All right. Uh, We're going to play one last song before I jump into our final set of stories, looking at what's going on in our airspace with drones and planes flying about. But... uh, Let's have a little bit of Kate Miller-Heidke, and this is Ride That Feeling. Well, we've been uh, looking at the latest science news that's been coming out, and uh, an interesting story that was released this week was uh, one that's in the tech space there, looking at Uber Air to launch in Melbourne. That's right, Uber wants to trial an aerial taxi service in Melbourne. Uh, And look, it's something that's technologically feasible, but... uh, needs to be pretty well regulated, uh, according to civil engineering experts, uh, if we're going to avoid absolute chaos. That's right. So the global ride-sharing giant Uber Air, uh, Uber is launching Uber Air, and it's a pilot program, if you'll pardon the pun. Uh, they're also trialling it in the US cities of Dallas and Los Angeles. And what they're trying to do is to connect transport hubs like airports to central city sites. The rideshare company said test flights were due to start from 2020 and plans were for commercial operations to begin from 2023. Now, it's great to have companies like Uber push the limits and see what we can do, and we've got to have someone doing it. Otherwise, we'll be just, uh, you know, driving around forever. Uh, but uh, there's also a, uh, a range of other things that need to be taken into account. From a technologically... Technologic- from a technological perspective, we're very close to the point uh, that uh, uh, battery technologies can support uh, these kinds of smaller vehicles on the test flights and that sort of thing. And what's going to be the real challenge, though, is uh, regulation. Um, you know, there was chaos around Uber ground vehicles where governments weren't adequately prepared for the technology and had to work around with different companies to ensure it wasn't chaos on the ground. And you can imagine it's even more complicated in the air. Uber can often enter markets in an aggressive way. Uh, so governments have to think carefully about what regulations are needed to preserve livability in the city and, you know, the downsides to the technology. Um the uh, Australian governments have adopted a forward-looking approach to ride-sharing and uh, future transport technology, and that was said by the Regional General Manager for Uber in Australia, Susan Anderson. Uh, coupled with Melbourne's unique demographic and geospatial factors, she said, uh, and a culture of innovation and technology, this makes Melbourne the perfect third-launch city for Uber Air. We'll see other Australian cities following soon after. So very interesting indeed. Uh, CASA, the Civil Aviation Safety Authority, uh, said they were going to work with the company to ensure the service was safe before it started operating. And uh, there are a few boxes that they need to tick. Uh, According to CASA, the company has to get safety certification for the new battery-operated aircraft, which doesn't exist yet. Uh, The airspace they would use would have to be managed by authorities, and the people operating the aircraft would need specialised training. And finally, infrastructure for the mini airports does not yet exist either. The regional general manager 
of Uber Eats, Jody Oster, conceded the days of pilotless flight were a long way off. There's a lot of work to do, uh, and uh, it's not going to happen overnight, but Uber is keen to make it happen. Of course, they're not the only company racing to take over the skies. Airbus is trialling its own air taxi service using a prototype electric aircraft similar to a drone, which can take off and land vertically. German company Volocopter is set to test its own drone-based vehicles in Singapore later this year. And Air New Zealand has also said it's examining an autonomous electric air taxi service. Uh, so lots of options there. And in fact, Canberra is kind of on the cutting edge of uh, drone services, although not in the transport space, but in the delivery space. You might have heard about Google's Wing, uh, which has been in Canberra for a while. It uh, started its trial um, uh, over the border, uh, well, sorry, uh, down south in uh, Benithan, uh, which uh, allowed them to trial a few things in that area where there was a decent population but not too many people and uh, uh, had a bit of airspace there. So Wing is actually run by Google's overarching company, Alphabet, and uh, was initially trialling delivering burritos, coffee and medication by drone uh, down in Benithan. And uh, it was an interesting trial. Uh, They're trying to do small things. So just the the little things that, oh, I forgot this, I need that. They found that uh, coffee was a really important one um, for them to get right. And they had to develop special coffee characters, coffee characters, coffee carriers for the drone for that one. Um, But it seems like quite a, you know... uh, helpful service especially you know things like uh, let's say you've got a sick kid you've run out of children's panadol well normally you'd have to pile the sick kid into the car take them away from home drive down to the pharmacy pick it up drive back home again unload the sick kid and all you've done is just frustrate that child uh, for 20 minutes in that process whereas uh, with the the drone you can call that uh, children's panadol to your door the drone will go and pick it up from the chemist pull it up, fly it over to you and drop it off in your front yard. So it's an amazing idea and uh, it's been an interesting series of trials. Uh, Currently uh, they're uh, moving into a new depot in Mitchell uh, with uh, roller doors built into the second storey of the depot. So it's uh, allowing the drones to fly in, fly out and uh, see how it goes on. Uh, currently, Wing is currently seeking all the uh, permissions and that sort of thing. Uh, but uh, one of the big uh, parts of the Benithan trial was uh, the noise of the drones. You know, they made thousands of deliveries without a safety incident, uh, but uh, the locals were upset by the noise, and some saying it even drove them to tears. The drones were below legal noise limits, uh, but Wing has since developed a new quieted model uh, for its Mitchell operation. Uh, So obviously a bit closer to more residents around there, so the quieter the better. Uh, local inquiry into drone delivery has heard no agency currently has remit to actually handle the noise issues. CASA and the ACT government both denied they had jurisdiction to manage it. So that's certainly something that uh, the legislation will need to catch up with. So the new Mitchell operation that uh, Wing's going to be opening up will initially deliver goods from a dozen local businesses to five suburbs in Gungahlin up in Canberra's north. Uh, Wing uh, said that they will be uh, selling a range of products for delivery, including gelato, chocolate, bread and even 
golf gear of all things. Uh, actually, that one would be quite good, wouldn't it? Imagine you uh, hit your golf ball, you can't find it, you need a new golf ball, just call it up on wing. Uh, so it's an interesting partnership here, connecting with local businesses in Gungahlin to help them reach more customers faster, safer and more sustainably. The delivery service will initially only be available to 100 eligible homes in the suburbs of Crace, Palmerston and Franklin and they are expected to gradually expand to more customers in Harrison and Gungahlin in the coming weeks and months. Uh, local chocolate, t- chocolate maker Peter Channels, whose chocolates are going to be delivered by drone, uh, said it was an exciting opportunity to expand into a new market and uh, interesting interactions connecting to a different audience through drones. So some interesting technological advancements there. But uh, as with all these things, we have to make sure that it actually works for everyone and it's not just progress for progress's sake. But there is one space where drones are making a huge difference uh, in a positive way, and uh, that is down on the beach. Uh, and data from a surf life-saving New South Wales drone trial has revealed January uh, is a significant month for shark activity, and the north coast of New South Wales is the state's shark hotspot. Yes, they over summer, 350 volunteers were trained as drone pilots for the trial and they spotted 370 sharks across that summer period with 42% of sightings made in January. So, if, uh, so it's an interesting uh, drone operation. It's the largest ever conducted in Australia with more than 8,000 flights at 20 trial locations across the New South Wales coast uh, and some great data there. Uh, Byron Bay and Ballina had a significant number of sightings, as did Pambula Beach on the south coast. 42% of sightings were made in January, as I said, followed by April, which had 21%, March 15 and February 8. So interesting data there indeed. Um, it's extremely valuable data um, because it is one of the largest marine data sets in the world captured via drones. They uh, they recorded drone footage from a range of uh, places and... Um, what they can do is if lifeguards spot what they believe to be a shark, then they try and identify it as a threatening species. Uh, so basically anything over two metres in a bull shark, tiger shark or white pointer. If it's within 200 metres of swimmers, they sound the alarm on the drone itself and this alerts people who might be in the vicinity to get out of the way. Most... Most of the time, the sharks uh, don't play any uh, real don't uh, sorry don't play any don't uh, have any real harm uh, there, but occasionally it can be a threat. Uh, so it's a fantastic way to maintain the safety of our beaches. Uh, their surf life-saving New South Wales is also uh, trialling, uh, dropping uh, life-saving uh, flotation devices uh, because, you know, in a rescue situation, they're able to fly the drone straight to where they need it to be. And uh, at the moment, they can just give uh, video feedback to rescuers about the scenario and what's unfolding and the best approach to it because what you can see from the air is much greater than what you can see at water level. You can spot rips and that sort of thing. But imagine being able to drop the fl- flotation device straight straight from above, with a thermal camera to also help you spot the person as well. It's just amazing advances in technology that uh, can be used for these sorts of situations. So that's drones in a positive light.
Well, that just about brings us to the end of today's Fuzzy Logic show. So it's been a pleasure to have you on board, listeners. If you did enjoy today's show, you can always listen again. We do podcast as much as we can. Fuzzy Logic on 2xx.podbean.com is where they are, or you can find us on iTunes as well. You can also check, check us out on Facebook or we're on Twitter at Fuzzy Logic SciShow. My name's Broderick Matthews. It's been a pleasure to have you with us this morning for your science on a Sunday.